Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. While at the Air Force Association's annual airspace cyber conference and trade show outside Washington, D.C., where our coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, we met with Greg Ulmer, the Executive Vice President for Lockheed Martin's Aeronautics Sector, the world's leading maker of military aircraft with a product line that spans from the iconic F-16 Fighting Falcon and the C-130 Hercules Transport to the stealthy F-35 Lightning II Fighter. But before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and ultra-intelligence and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. Here's our conversation with Greg Ulmer. Greg, thanks so very much for joining us. I know it's a very busy AFA for you on this 75th anniversary, and it's really a pleasure having you back on the program. Thanks, Vago. Very much appreciated. Happy to be here with you this morning. Uh, indeed, we had, uh, unfortunately, uh, we were supposed to meet at Farnborough, so I'm glad that we're meeting. I'm glad you're uh, better now. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, this is one of the most exciting times for combat aviation in, in decades. Um, you know, particularly from a Lockheed Martin portfolio standpoint, you know, the F-16, which is a, a mainstay product that's still in production, uh, and you guys still see a market for it. The F-35 really has uh, had an incredible run uh, in the international community and increasingly seen as integral to U.S. warfighting going in the future. You've got NGAD, uh, the next generation air dominance uh, aircraft uh, that is uh, in competition or development, and nobody will confirm where it is on that, uh, which is probably how it should be. Uh, a number of other classified efforts. Uh, that a, a number of companies have benefited uh, from. Uh, and now we've got uh, this uh, next generation uh, unmanned capability, which uh, Secretary Kendall uh, talks about, uh, the uh, CCA, the Collaborative Combat uh, Aircraft. Y you have a unique uh, experience base in that virtually every one of these programs, classified or unclassified, you've worked on. You were the F-35, uh, with the F-35 program as the head of that, with the F-22 program as well, where you headed that. At this moment, what, what is your vision, what does your experience tell you about what the future of combat aviation is? Because increasingly folks are talking about, you know, it's, it's not about high alpha, uh, actually, even though the maneuverability is a tremendous thing we're gonna to get to such longer range engagements that actually range in persistence and actually unmanned uh, artificial intelligence and all of that autonomy are more important. What's, what's the vision? What does all this decades of experience and current program operations tell you about what the future looks like on this 75th anniversary of the Air Force? Yeah, it sounds cliche-ish, but it's really about the integration of things. If I look at my career that you, you discussed, I mean, just five years ago, 10 years ago, we were very programmatic silo-centric thinking. Here's what an F-35 does. Here's what an F-22 does. Here's what an F-16. Even here's what a C-130 does, right? It's the integration of things today. So from an F-35 perspective, think about the data sensing, the data fusion, the, the understanding of that information 
um, the rack and stack of that information, then the sharing of that information across multiple domains, that's an F-35 today. Now think of that on steroids. Think of that occurring on an F-16. Think of that occurring on an F-22. Think of that even occurring on a tanker or a C-130. And then that integration of things. So these platforms become nodes within an environment of data sensing, data collecting, data organization, and data presentation across multiple domains. And so um, products like an F-35 with the new Tech Refresh 3, a new integrated core processor, are going to very much be in the forefront of that integration of things. But that's going to expand. You've heard the Secretary talk about um, CCA aircraft. And the, the answer to that is almost infinity in terms of what that could be. It truly will be a family of systems. So you'll have expendable things, you'll have attritable things, you'll have things that you're going to bring home each and every time, right? And they're going to have different mission sets. You could have a sensor um, CCA, you could have a weapon CCA, um, you could have uh, a, a node CCA or an effects um, provider CCA. Um, and some of those will be within a given airframe or system. Some of them will be specialized based on the physics of the problem. Might be stealth, might be distance, might be altitude. And so there'll be some physics involved, but I think you'll see a lot more utility, if you will, within the given products that we produce. Um, how important um, is modularity to that, right? Um, innovative British company, Arellis, uh, we've, we've uh, heard from them uh, as well. Uh, on a modular approach. Uh, General Atomics is working on a modular approach as well. The secretary has talked about that. Um, what is the state of the modular art as you're trying to do this? Because actually, from an aerodynamic standpoint, from a control standpoint, from an engine standpoint, it's not, I mean, nobody's done it yet, right, as a true modular family of aircraft. But what's your thinking about what that modular future looks like? Because we've tended to do that in an airframe, right? Like different missions for an airframe, as opposed to saying, hey, we might be able to do very interesting. If we get the core architecture right, we can have different engines, manned, unmanned, different wings and configurations. I mean, what's, what's your thinking about the, the feasibility of that kind of an approach? So I think it's already happening today. I'll tell you, the U-2, I think, is a very prime example where you have um, an architecture within the airframe that you can plug and play different sensors on the fly. Um, I also think about from an airframe or physics point of view, you talked about wings. So think about you want a vehicle that has sensors in a wing, and you might, from a modular aspect, you could take those wings off, put different wings set on that has fuel in the wing. So now you're looking for, for range, right? So I do think from a physics point of view, we'll have modular kinds of design. But I tend to think more from a software integration mission systems point of view, that's where the modularity, it might be a leading edge. So you want one sensor suite on an airframe, and then you replace the leading edge with a different sensor suite on the airplane. Um, or you have, um, various, you have a common airframe, think F-35, and you have different configurations of F-35 in the in the situation relative to you might have an air an airplane with a different sensor suite than another a different fuel load a different uh, weapon set etc that's from a modularity perspective those are the kinds of things i think you're going to see in the future 
Um, a number of years ago, uh, when uh, Jeff Babion, when he was heading Skunk Works, talked about uh, the stealth tanker, and, and you guys have been discussing that for a while, a lot of people scoffed at it and said, oh, look, this is the most absurd thing. But increasingly, you hear senior Air Force leaders say, well, actually, you know, in, in the kind of anti-access area denial environments we're going into, um, that would be actually an important capability. At the same time, weapons themselves are changing, which is giving new life to fourth generation aircraft, right? I mean, if you can shoot an LRASM, you just need that to get within close distance to whatever you want to, uh, you want to go after. What's the, the stealth and non-stealth balance future that we're going into? Because at one point we thought, look, you needed to have that degree of low observability across all platforms. And for some, it's a very high degree of low observability. There are things that are under works which are pretty unbelievable in terms of their capabilities, which I don't expect you to discuss. What's that balance between what is a low observable platform and, and what is an observable, right? I mean, because there, it looks like we're coming to a different sort of balance point. And so how does that shape what the future of combat aviation looks like, even if our perception is that everything really has to be sort of to a higher degree of low observability? Yeah, you're exactly right, Vago. It's a balance, right? So where where is that going to lay? From a physics point of view, we're going to have weapons that can reach farther, can go faster, and so we have to be responsive to that. So think about from that CCA perspective, you have, um, I'll say, autonomous machine learning informed things uh, in a CCA environment in front of perhaps manned um, items, really allowing that ability to be, to have some distance in front of, uh, or sensing um, and understanding the, the battle situation in front of, uh, of the fight, I'll say. But you also want ability sometimes to, to be undetected, to get there, to do sensing, um, really to provide a deterrence in front of an action, and that your opponent knows you have that ability, right? So even though we can shoot long ways, you may want to have an ability to be in front of a situation or understand the battle space and let your opponent know, hey, I kind of know what's going on, and I can apply an effect um, relative to if, if you want to do something relative to aggression. Um, I also think about... Um, the ability to provide effects. So sometimes you have the, the tyranny of distance relative to being able to apply effects. Typically there's physics involved and you have to have an ability to be a certain distance away. And so I think there'll always be, in my view, um, from a physics point of view, an ability to, to be low observable and to provide effects effectively. And again, really the intent is that deterrence that your opponent knows you have these abilities, and so they're, they're, they think twice before they do anything. Um, uh, some of the uh, great programs you've been associated with, F-22 and F-35, are tremendous uh, programs and capabilities, but they had very, very long and torturous gestation processes. Um, some were budget-driven, some were technology-driven. Then the technology gets outdated. You have to refresh it. Um, what, what are the lessons from the F-35 that we can learn? that will make sure that NGAD, CCA, and any other program really moves fast at the speed of relevance, is not as painful, and is overall more successful? I've asked your counterpart, and I've asked Ted Colbert this question and Tom Jones, and I'm sort of interested in your take as well, on you know, how do we need to be doing these big, complex programs? Because in many respects, the F-35 has given us a great baseline architecture. We have a combat system. You know, but there were power plant development, sensor, skin, producibility. Uh, but as you look at a digital thread future, 
and you know, you've said this before, right? I mean, basically it's about the data and how you move the data and harness the data to get that combat power at the end of the day, right? I mean, even, even when the platform matters. What's the right way to do this so that we can actually do these ambitious programs faster? Yeah, couple And right. Yeah, a couple things, Vago. So I graduated college in 87 and I was told, Greg, you're gonna go work on a paperless airplane. And I would say up until about two, three years ago, I have never seen a paperless airplane. But I can say in classified spaces today, there exists a paperless airplane or paperless product. So think about requirement definition, think design, think transmitting that design to the supply chain, think informing the manufacture and build of the airplane or a product or a platform and think about sustainment of that. Right? We are doing these things in a digital environment today and what the outcome of that is, is reduced build span times, uh, less rework, um, a lot more accurate product in terms of conformance um, as we've seen all that play through. And we've proven it to ourselves in the last two to three years on projects within the Skunk Works, within aeronautics. Um, so I, I really see almost, you know, we talk about evolution. I almost see a revolution relative to the digital transformation of our work. I also see from an airframe perspective, so F-22 in the modernization effort, it truly has an open systems architecture. Others can come and plug in to that architecture very rapidly. So you have to understand kind of the interface between the airframe and whatever you're bringing, but that open systems architecture exists today. It exists in F-35, it's gonna exist more so in the TR-3 Tech Refresh 3 configuration, so we can very quickly bring new technology to the airframe. And we talked previously in the discussion about utility, so the utility may be um, the ability, for example, um, a mission data file that comes to the airplane today um, you have to kind of load that into the airframe before you go fly. In the future, think about the ability to do that on the fly in the air or perhaps informed by artificial intelligence or machine learning on the fly relative to that mission data file. So that's, that's, those are the kinds of things I think about in the future. Uh, are you surprised? I don't, I don't want to bring uh, Top Gun and Maverick uh, into this, right? Uh, and and uh, um, you have to suspend belief, right, uh, because... You know, it's the Navy and the F-18 is the darling of the Navy. I hate to say that to you, but I think uh, it was it was clear even in the flight deck scene. I'm glad we saw an F-35C, uh, uh, but I don't even know if we'd actually made it off the catapults. Most of them were glamour shots of the F-18. I mean, it is astonishing. Does it surprise you that even after decades of experience that this is about the integration and about the integrated weapon system and the kind of capabilities that the 22 and the, and the 35 really bring that you know, there's, there still appears to be, because the, the future informed by what these programs are of the past tells you that we are going to a very, very different future. And then it's about how you move that data and how you fuse, and maybe it's not an onboard sensor. Maybe you are pulling this off a satellite or a sensor that is actually someplace else. Um, I mean, is it, does it surprise you that we're still having that kind of Right, I mean, even when senior leaders make statements sometimes, you wonder like, well, we already are doing some of this stuff. Vago, we're creatures of habit. Uh, so we apply our experiences of the past to where we are today and where we think of in the future. The way I kind of describe it for me personally, if you ask me to design an airplane, I use the tool set that I studied academically relative to that. The, the future engineers of tomorrow 
don't apply the same constraints I did relative to that development. The operators of the airframes are the same way. They, they have an experience base, an application, a tactics approach that's informed by the past. Every time I talk to F-35 pilots coming off the boat, they are just amazed. They won't step away from the airframe relative to what it provides. In terms of flyability, in terms of uh, aerodynamic performance, in terms of low observable, but more importantly, in terms of the mission systems and what that airframe does, I'll say for the carrier air wing, is the, is the response I get. They're taking uh, first-time pilots, brand-new pilots off the line, putting them in F-35, fully combat-capable, off the boat. They talk about prior to going on the first deployment just last summer on the Carl Vincent, we talked about fully mission-capable aircraft and mission-capable aircraft. Today, they talk about combat-capable aircraft. And what that means is the F-35 through the MATL system shares F-35 to F-35 sensor information. So you may have a sensor off on one airplane. You don't even know it because you're getting the data from another F-35. So you're fully combat-capable, even though you may be a sensor down. And the Navy's already saying, hey, we really... This is discovery. This is a new way of doing our business. So I'll take an 80% mission-capable F-35. That's 100% mission-capable with, you know, multiple F-35s. I'll take that to the fight every day. So it's really, I think, we have to reinform our experience. We need to get new thought into the equation that's not constrained by our past experience of how we approach our our problems. Uh, there is a lot of debate why we're not at the 180 airplane a year rate. Um, we talk about it on the uh, program uh, with Ron, Richard, uh, and Sash. Um, a lot of concerns about whether CCA will then undermine or whether NGAD is actually undermining these numbers and why they're lower. Do we ever get to 180 and why are we not getting to 180? Uh, ultimately, I mean, you know, and, and is 180 still a relevant number out there in terms of what we should be shooting for or is reasonable? Yeah, I think um, 180 is a reasonable number to shoot for. I think you're going to see efficiency. You're going to see more capacity within the system. Um, but will the demand actually be there for 180? And when I say that, not just from a U.S. Air Force or U.S. Service point of view, but from a global view, right, is that demand. So we want to be careful about how much capacity we put into the system. So we want to consume it. We don't want to have excess capacity within the system. I do need to remind you, though, I mean, we, we had some constraints associated with Turkey's removal out of the program, in particular um, center fuselage. So we're doing some things with Northrop Grumman to put that capacity within the system. We want to be as efficient and appropriate as, we, as the demand demands of us relative to that capacity. But I could see um, several years of production at you know, a 170, 180 kind of number. We just don't, we want to be very wise relative to managing our customers' money, our money relative to let's put the capacity required that meets the demand. But does NGAD uh, and CCA and other platforms uh, on, in the classified space change, you think, the overall demand for the F-35, right? I mean, is there something to that thesis? Because there are folks who are looking at it and saying, well, look, I mean, if F-30, if NGAD, for example, is moving as quickly, uh, or if some of these other programs are moving as quickly, that they, you know, that's one of the things that is suppressing F-35 demand. Is that a wrong way of looking at it from your standpoint? I mean, it does, do these programs take away from F-35? Yeah, we've heard directly, I believe, from the Air Force relative to NGAD that that program really is to replace the F-22 in the quantities of the F-22. So they talk a number like 180 is the number I've heard. 
Um, so I don't see that as a threat to F-35. The international demand for F-35 is is bigger and deeper and, and more demanding than I would say I expected with my tenure on the F-35. So we just saw um, Finland, we saw Switzerland sign up yesterday, we've got Canada coming online, the Greeks are interested, Czech Republic is interested. Many of our current partner nations and current customers, my belief, will increase their fleet size of F-35. Uh, we will get the TR-3, Tech Refresh 3, into the airplane. The Air Force demand will come back for the F-35. We've heard the chief mention the F-35 as the quarterback. Um, the new integrated core processor will, you know, we talk about CCA. The F-35 is going to be a big part of the command and control and the execution, the integration, and the family of systems in that environment. So I see very strong demand for F-35 going forward. Um, one of the important elements of this is the alternate engine, uh, the adaptive uh, uh, engine technology program, AETP. Pratt & Whitney and General Electric have been part of that uh, program. Once upon a time, General Electric was de delivering the alternate engine, although this program is, is, is different. I remember even you know, over the years having this conversation with you and your predecessors, hey look, you know, the airplane's getting heavier, power demands are increasing, and yeah, nobody's ever gonna say they don't want more range. Uh, and and it, it looks like some of the range stuff is being demonstrated, right? But potentially 30% increased range is, is what General Electric has been talking about. And I know Pratt has been talking about similar sort of increases, uh, in part because that's what the Air Force wants. Um, there's a little bit of a question about, you know, risk associated with that. I mean, obviously, if you're from General Electric's perspective, you want this to move ahead. If you're Pratt and Whitney, you may be less inclined for it to move ahead. Uh, although both, both of the engines are a form fit factor to, to go in the airplane. Um, I think Secretary Kendall is on record saying, well, that would cost, you know, I mean, there would be some risk associated with it. We have to make the decision. There would be cost, and it would cost us, say, 70 uh, F-35s, if I recall correctly. Um, uh, somebody from Lockheed mentioned to me that that would be two B-21s, and somebody from Northrop told me, we're not going to give up two B-21s <laughs> for this. Uh, uh, this is a little bit of industrial dynamics. From your standpoint, how important is this program? Um, because at a time when folks are saying we need greater range, it would seem to be almost automatic, especially in a Pacific context, that you would want that 30% extra range, for example, or even 15% range, right? What's the right way to execute this from the standpoint of somebody who knows engines and, and saw that engine competition is a good thing, whether on the F-16 or any other platform, right? I mean, at the, at the end of the day, it's about delivering the best capability and, and you're running out of power. Yeah. So from an airframe perspective, we think of block, think TR3 block four, what I call plus, so 2030 time horizon. And you're right, Vago. So think about there will be more power, more thermal, more cooling required of the platform. The Air Force and our customers will define what that capability demand will be. They'll provide that to, to both the engine companies as well as, as aeronautics um, from a, a requirement point of view. From an, OE, from an airframe OEM, I want as most, much margin in the airframe that I can get. So that's going to be informed by what the offerings are, are on the engine side. So we have potential derivative. We also have two AETP. And so, you know, I am being asked by my customer what that demand of the airframe will be to also consider that I have a power thermal management system on the airplane in addition to the engine, right? So I provide all that information. But from an, air, from an OEM for the airframe, I am definitely keen to get as much capability in terms of power, cooling, thermal management, as well as specific fuel consumption improvements such that I increase the legs of the aircraft, right, in terms of range. So 
I'm interested to get the most margin I can in capability built within the airframe. I inform the government relative to what that demand is, what the requirements are. They decide what the requirements are, and then they have to do you know, a trade relative to the economics of a derivative or an AETP, what the development cost of an AETP might be versus the development of a derivative, and then they have to make those trades on the government side. That's not for me to decide. But strictly from an OEM designing and building the airframe, I want as much capability and margin I have in that system. Um, and uh, one, one last question. Um, the chief uh, at uh, the Global Air and Space Chiefs Conference that's hosted by the Royal Air Force uh, every year in London, um, you know, m talked about integrated by design, that it's great that allies and partners have a diversity of weapons uh, and a diversity of platforms. Um, you know, the British are working, for example, on the Tempest along with uh, their uh, Italian uh, and uh, Swedish partners, and, and actually the Germans might end up being part of that program, given the frustrations that the French-German-Spanish SCAF program uh, has. Are, are you having any dialogue or discussion or a mechanism you know, so I'm interested in your view on integrated by design because that would would appear to open a lot of horizons. But also the key is, as Secretary Kendall and the Chief has said, ultimately that the United States can operate seamlessly with all of its allies and partners that are using different platforms. So I see from a Lockheed perspective the right answer might be an F-35, but for industrial and other reasons, nations may, may not want to do that. What's the right way for us to make sure that as allies and partners, whether in Europe or in the Pacific or elsewhere, that we are integrated even if they develop different kinds of airplanes uh, or on their, on their own. Yeah, I think where, my, where I first go is policy. So we, we as a, a nation need to decide what policy will allow what kind of integration we can have uh, from a capability perspective. So as we develop or, or, or think about the future of F-35, think maybe Block 5, whatever that might be on an F-35, what is the policy going to be relative to that integration? Um, most of those nations want some kind of element to participate in those programs, right, from a um, capability definition, participation of that technology. Um, so it's, it's really going to be tied, I think, closely to our U.S. policy relative to what kind of technologies we, we can work across the globe um, with our partner nations. Um, but I also think it from a... I'll say a JADO, JADC2, multi-domain operations point of view. Uh, we heard the, the secretary yesterday announce a new program office associated with ABMS for the Air Force. And so that integration or that definition of that multi-domain operation is also going to be key to the integration of our products, F-35 and future, with our, with our partners and allies around the world. So... I think that's going to help define what that looks like going forward. And then the policy of our ability to integrate with those nations because they actively want to participate in the development of. And I think if our policy excludes that, they're going to be more inclined to be more organic, if that makes sense to you. So I think those are the two things that come to my mind. It's really kind of the standard of what ABMS is. And then it's what's our policy going to allow for us to do across the globe. 30 seconds, inflation, um, it's having an impact. Um, it's been a somewhat more muted because obviously all the contracts and many of them that you operate on are on, on longer cycles. How's inflation impacting some of your programs that are among the world's most complex programs that have more suppliers in more places and the supply chain is not getting any better <laughs> as fast as everybody would like it to be? 
Yeah, it's pretty simple, Vago. The price of gas has gone up. A gallon of milk costs more, right? So in very simple terms, our material costs more. Um, freight, the amount of the cost of freight has gone up um, tremendously. And so those are pressures within the system. I'm very proud. You know, we just negotiated 15 through 17. We've had COVID. We've had inflation. We've had pressure in supply chain. Um, we've had um, other pressures within the workforce. Um, think um, attrition in the workforce. Think absentee because of COVID in the in the workforce. But in our negotiation, um, the price of the airplane is going to go up a little bit. Think of an F-35A, but it's less than inflation. I think we as an industry have have done extremely well of managing that. It's it. It's very much, though, in the forefront of our future. It's going to be a challenge across our industry. Do you, do you uh, I mean, the 15 negotiation was fraught with some last-minute uh, hiccups because I know you guys were working that very, very hard. Do you need at some point to have an equitable adjustment on, on your aeronautic programs? You know, the, we've heard from OSD, we've heard from the Department of Defense, let's, let's have the ability to have economic adjustment both upward and downward, should should we ha have a recovery? And I think that's appropriate and fair. Greg, thanks very much. Always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Vago. Very much appreciate it.